Welcome to the Raised with Jesus podcast, 10 minutes every day where the life of Jesus meets yours. This week and next week conclude our first Saturday series of the year. This week is the first part of a two-part interview with Karen Fisher from Wisconsin Lutheran Child and Family Services, also known as Christian Family Solutions. Be sure to check out today's show notes for the resources that she mentions, as well as information about Christian Family Solutions. Here goes. So today we have Karen Fisher with us. Karen works as a therapist or a counselor with Wisconsin Lutheran Child and Family Services, um, now known as Christian Family Solutions. Hi, Karen. How are you? Hi, Pastor. I'm well. Thanks. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself um, and you know your credentials or how long you've been doing this, that sort of a thing. Because uh, yeah. today we want to talk about depression is the big thing. Sure. Happy to do that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, Karen Fisher, I work with Christian Family Solutions um, in the Germantown is our home-based Germantown, Wisconsin, just north of the Milwaukee area. Um, I happen to serve in a um, telehealth capacity a lot these days, um, but previously managed our, still do manage our Brookfield location, which is just west of Milwaukee. Um, and so currently what I, what I spend most of my time on um, is adults. Um, so 17 and up kind of, of groups. I do um, outpatient, which is one-on-one counseling, which most people are familiar with. But then also we do um, higher levels of care and group work. So something typically um, for people who are having trouble maintaining themselves in that one-on-one atmosphere, they come to one or two of these different kinds of groups. And so we have something called intensive outpatient. Those are for folks really either coming out of a hospital who need a lot more support or who are trying to avoid going to a hospital and needing that level of care. Uh, So we do that. And then out of that office, we also do a teen group similar to that, a day treatment group where they come about 12 hours a week um, to really work on skills and fix some of the concerns that they and their parents are having. So um, that's what I've been doing there for a long time. We also do a lot of education, um, new program kind of called Cornerstone, where we're spending time um, really teaching resilient skills in a proactive, intentional way. So that type of work I do a lot of too. So um, prior to that, I worked for 10 years with Wisconsin Lutheran College and as the director of their student health department, um, focusing in on that age group, 18 to 22 year olds. And then also spend time at the local psychiatric hospital for seven years um, in their groups and programs. So that's where I come from. Oh my goodness, that is uh, quite the quite the intense background. There's a lot. There's a lot there. I'd say it's been an interesting <laughs> so some, path. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like you've got a, a wide variety of experience, and um, probably related to the topic we're talking about today, in particular, is is depression. Um, this has been kind of our Saturday series at the Raise with Jesus podcast. And most of it thus far, we've talked about it from a spiritual perspective. Um, but I want to begin today by looking kind of at the definition, first of all, what is uh, depression? And then biologically, what do we think is kind of going on there? Sure. Um, and maybe we'll start with that. Yeah, sounds great. 
Yeah. So, so definition wise. Yeah. Um, I often say that I wish the American psychological association would start taking some linguistics classes because we're using terms that are overly, um, over overlap, right? If I use the word depressed, that means something very different than when I say clinical depression, they're very different things. Um, so right. I can have a down day or a down week. Um, and I say I'm depressed, right? Which isn't untrue. But when you're thinking about it from a medical standpoint, you have very different definitions of clinical depression, right? So um, there's a very, very substantial book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and the DSM, as we lovingly mm -hmm. call it, um, four or 500 pages now of of um, diagnostic criteria. So from a medical standpoint, what is it that I'm looking for or what do I have to notice in order to diagnose something? So if I'm going to look for um, clinical depression, there are specific road markers or, or signs that I'm looking for. Um, and two of them are pretty Pretty, they're just standard. You must have these. Um, you must have low mood for two weeks or more, and you must have a loss of interest in typical activity. So those two have to be present in order for you to meet any clinical diagnosis of any kind of depression. I think it's also important to know, you know, that there's over 35 diagnosable types um, or um, different, um, let's say, modifiers that we would use in clinically diagnosing somebody. So you think of like postpartum depression or um, geriatric depression or different types of things in different categories of people. So, so I suppose those kind of show themselves in different ways. And with all these types, you know, somebody is very used to just hearing the word depression, even tossed bantered about on television. And what you're saying is there's a whole lot more here than most people realize. Yeah. And it's a little difficult to discern if you don't know what you're looking for. Right. Um, yeah. So you'd have different categories of, let's say, um, societal things or age related things or like certain people would maybe be prone to postpartum and other people clearly would not, you know, um, or, you know, is it um, modifiers like the severity or length of the condition? Some people have had um, a particular type of depression we call dysthymia, which is kind of your low grade, long term, can't get above a certain level sort of, of depression. And those are all treated differently. That's the other reason to kind of know what you're working with and really have a clear definition. So if you're thinking of just um, what we would call, um, you know, major depressive disorder, which is the most common, probably depressive disorder, um, those are those two things. It's, it's got to be the two weeks or more of low mood and then an inability to enjoy regular activities. And then you have kind of the symptomatic list, right? After that, there's, you know, all of these other things that could be co-occurring, but they're not required to meet the definition. They do give you an insight as to what's really affecting this person or what's the symptomology that's causing their life to be in turmoil or, or not be able to function well. But you don't, you don't necessarily get more depressed because you have more symptoms, right? It's just a list a la carte, right, uh -huh. of, of things. <laughs> so, so lots wow. of things that go into that, right? Yeah, definitely.
Mm-hmm. And so then when we talk about depression, you mentioned um, some sociological factors and um, in, in some cases and in other cases, um, you know, from your experience, you were working with specific groups and maybe specific trauma that were involved. Um, what do we know about like once we're working with the, that baseline definition of, of depression, when we're talking about two weeks or more? of of this low mood um what do we know about what's going on like in the brain or in a person's life that can trigger this or or maybe has to be stopped for it to to go away yeah so yeah we can talk kind of about um sometimes i'll ask people to think of it in terms of the the ingredients for a perfect storm what are the things that kind of go together that might produce this right Mm -hmm. so so you think of maybe biological factors um, or chemical factors those are the ones where you're having let's say some sort of chemical issue Um, typically with depression that's with serotonin or norepinephrine those types of things Um, on the anxiety side it's a little more related maybe to cortisol and other chemicals Um, but that can be biological in nature, right? It can be almost genetic in nature that you would have um, some sort of lower chemical balance compared to the person next to you, just like you would genetically maybe have um, higher blood pressure than the person next to you. So biologically, we know that there's there's potentially things at play. Um, we also know looking socially at trauma, um, that one-time trauma, like the what we often associate with PTSD or, or folks who come back from the service or people who've encountered a really dramatic event it can be a one-time event that causes some of that as well, or it can be um, what might move over into the socioeconomic or the risk factor side. It could be um, lifelong difficulties such as neglect or abuse or um, poverty that would over time erode a person's abilities um, to cope, right? So those things might all come together as well as just the environment they're raised in. What is it that they have learned um, or not learned that puts them in a growth category or a risk category um, when they come across mental health challenges, right? Yeah. And I suppose that that kind of even gets into the the inner thinking of a person like two people coming from different socioeconomic strata or different life experiences um, react differently to the same traumatic experience. Um, and how is it that that well, how do you treat something like that? I guess because sure. you can't you can't like run a blood test and say, oh, here's the problem, and so here's the medication. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're getting so much closer to that. I'm really hoping in my lifetime we will have something more like that. Um, there is new gene research coming out on on the chemical side of things that that helps us understand brain chemical makeups and and what types of let's say medications, for example, might intervene the quickest for a person. So we're getting closer on that, but. Um, absent that, right, we have to kind of figure out from a mental health standpoint, what is it that the person is doing? How are they coping well or how do, what we call maladaptive coping? What have they been doing that's actually making it worse? Um, so there's a, I like to use um, a piece from the Department of Health, um, which I wish I'll share it with you. Maybe it'll be helpful, but. Yeah, um, I can put it in the show notes, maybe. Yeah. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services that has a really interesting um, breakout of how do people in different ages 
and in different um, groupings and in different socioeconomic statuses and other other factors, how do they um, increase or decrease their ability to manage their lives? So, for example, um, sometimes we have what looks like the same event, but it's interpreted entirely differently. So one might say a risk factor for somebody, um, let's say in the 18 to 24 year old group, a risk factor might be school failure, right? I go to, let's say, college or tech school and um, maybe high school was fine, but now I go and it's not the A's I'm used to. Okay. That's still school failure to that kid, right? To that student, it's still school failure. We might look at it or someone else might look at it and say, but an A minus is not failure, right? But that the interpretation of the event is more important than the event itself. So if that person then um, can't find the right coping skills to get past that over time, how does that translate into how they move through the, through the world, right? So, so maybe a person like that, um, you know, we might say, well, you know, there are things they have that others don't have, like they do get to go to college or they, you know, um, have other opportunities. And so when we see that, we discount it and we say maybe maybe that shouldn't be failure. Right. Mm-hmm. But to them, there is no shouldn't. It just is to them. It is right. And so perception is reality. And then we have to work on those perceptions. Oh, my goodness. That sounds that that's really fascinating because it really sets up um, kind of like you come to an experience with your own set of presuppositions and your own and your own baseline. And, um, and then based on your perception of how, <laughs> whether you're above the line or below it, it, mm-hmm. it and how you react with that. Um, when you're talking with somebody like in therapy or, or just a group session like that, how do you help somebody work through when they feel like a failure? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the million dollar question. The million dollar question. Right. So there's a lot. So again, what's interesting is, um, again, that separation between I feel depressed versus clinical depression. Clinical depression has a lot of social science research behind it. Um, so we have theories and approaches that we know work because we've seen them work on humans. And so we can go ahead and use them. Right. Um, that's why I always say God's the original psychologist because he gave us a lot of these things already. You know, um, how do we think clearly? Oh, we take every thought captive to God, right? Like there's all kinds of ways to do that, but we have a lot of theories and a lot of, um, therapies that we know to apply. So that's, that's what the degree is for is to learn a lot of those things and all the continuing education. And, um, but you know, in that case, there are simple, I I shouldn't say simple, but there are what look like simple tools to apply. So for example, maybe in a case like that, um, one would be to maybe be thinking about um, um, the idea of failure or the idea of um, who sets the rules, right? So so some questioning of the rule setting. Mm-hmm. Um, who set the rule that an A minus is failure? Um, and then when once you kind of look at that, you have to challenge reality a little bit. So it's always pushing them past to challenge reality or the reality that they have, right? Because that perception is what's reality to them. Mm-hmm. Are there alternate realities? Yes, there are. Why would you choose this reality, this painful reality, mm-hmm. over a different one? Right? And there's reasons for that. There's always a why behind it. 
Um, so we have to look and see, you know, what is the why behind that? Um, one of the things you work really hard with people on is something called, um, especially in the de depression realm, is something called cognitive distortions. Um, and sounds exactly like the word would, you would think it would, right? Like cognitive. That's a confusing mean, word. I know. <laughs> cognitive just means thoughts, right? Like, so uh -huh. you got a thought and then distorted just means not accurate, right? It's, it's just not right. Plain and simple. Yeah. But the problem with that is, right, if you wander around with distorted lens all the time, you forget that it's distorted. You have no idea. So so cognitive distortions um, like I'm a failure. Right now, that's a that's a particular distortion called labeling. Um, in order for me to overcome labeling, I have to know the definition. So define failure. Well, a minus for me is a failure. OK, but is that a universal symbol of failure? Right. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that a movable definition? And it is. That makes sense. So I guess right? what you're kind of saying then is, um, especially when you're dealing with, you know, in this case, like a cognitive distortion where you've got your own set of definitions really is the therapist or in your case, you are working with this person or this group of people to get outside of themselves just a little bit to see reality from a different direction. Or a lot. Yeah. Because, um, you know, one of the curses of mental health is um, I think mental health challenges is the trap, right? That if I sit here long enough and I think about it hard enough, I will be able to figure out the why and then I'll be able to change it. And most of the time that is just um, unless you know how to do that correctly, it will just be a rabbit hole right? You're just, you're just going to spin and spin and spin because you're working with a depressed brain that can't see beyond itself. It, it's having trouble doing that. That's why coming to a therapist is so helpful, right? Because we can say to you, okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> that what you're thinking right there, that is really dangerous, right? Um, we need to find a new way to look at that. And you're not going to be able to come up with that on your own. So we can help you do that. And once you do that, you can repeat it. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, is that <laughs> it's kind of it, it sounds almost like a joke, you know? Um, why does my brain tell me that I'm that my brain is the smartest thing that I have? Well, because it's my brain telling me that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I always say that too. Um, sometimes when I'm talking with depressed people, because you know it's hard for them, it's hard for people who love them to understand mm. if they've not experienced it. And I'll say it this way: um, unfortunately your brain is the only organ that has a mind of its own. Yeah. Let that sink in. Right. So if, if your pancreas is broken, it doesn't go around blaming itself that you have diabetes, right? It doesn't say, Oh, you're such a terrible pancreas. What is wrong with you? <laughs> right. If you just tried harder pancreas, you could do better. You know, your, your brain doesn't, doesn't, you can't separate it, yeah. right? Your mind from your brain, the organ itself. And so if the organ isn't functioning well, um, it precludes your brain, your mind from doing the things that you really want it to do. Um, so that's the, that's the diabolical nature. You think of some of these mental health challenges. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So then, um, you know, I know you had mentioned kind of in the definition that we're working with when we're talking about depress a depressive disorder. Mm-hmm as being different from um, what I would maybe call fluctuations in mood that don't necessarily persist for those that two-week period of time. How can somebody whose brain 
you know, doesn't have the training maybe, or they, the brain is just thinking on its own. How can your average person recognize the difference between what's normal and what's abnormal? Mm-hmm. Well, and typically then what I'll say is how, how is what's going on actually affecting your life? That's how you'll know, you know? Um, so chemically often, uh, one of the big telltale signs is sleep disturbance. Um, sleep disturbance will occur chemically because the the brain chemicals, you know, are doing what they're supposed to do. But sometimes they have a side effect, and one of the side effects is that it, that they'll sort of shut down the sleep chemical, right? Um, almost as if it's saying, "Hey, you know, we're really depressed or we're really anxious. We need to stay up and think about that." And figure it out. It's almost like, um, cause your body kind of, your brain will do things in order of operation. Right. And number one, it, it attends to pain. That's the first thing it's going to do. Right. Um, cause it's trying to protect you. So if you're having mental pain, your brain will kind of say, Hey, we got to pay attention to that. We got to do something about that. We got to fix that. And it actually shuts down the sleep chemical. So for most people who are depressed, it's like clinically depressed, sleep disturbance is pretty common. Um, other major things, right? Like agitation that isn't typically there or inability to follow through on things you typically do, or, um, definitely, you know, tearfulness for some, or, um, probably the hardest parts, right? The hopelessness or worthlessness that everything sort of stops and, and, and just sort of pauses at, um, I'm not sure that I have anything to offer. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's a painful place. I think you, that is, and I think that that touches on maybe you know it helps to tighten our definition of depression a little bit when we're dealing with something because maybe a generation ago this was more the case, but people kind of thought if somebody is depressed it means they're they're sad and or they're crying all the time, um, but that maybe you know the way that I see it now at least is maybe that's just part of grieving but and there's some overlap between grieving and depression but it's not necessarily depression in and of itself um would you be able to speak to that a little bit when you talk about how the interaction of our emotions um whether it's tears or sadness and depression and maybe the interaction with grief Mm. that's a lot yeah it is let's see if we can unpack that a little bit um so so there's Maybe I'll tackle the grief part first and then I'll kind of come back um, to how emotion drives things. Um, So grief, usually, um, I'd have to think about whether or not um, depressed clients ever don't have grief. Like I'd I'd have to think about that. Have I ever Mm -hmm. seen depressed people who don't have a grief component? I'd, I'd have to think about it, but I would off the top of my head, I would say they all do. And partially I say that because um, we think of grief as just loss, loss of any kind. Um, Especially in the last 10 months, I've done a lot of talking on grief and, and thinking about grief and, you know, observing grief. And you think about even, you know, last April or May, and we had seniors graduating from high school, right? There's grief associated with how that turned out. Um, mm-hmm. there's loss associated with how that turned out. So I think all the way along, if, if, if you're a person who struggles with mental health challenges, encountering grief is probably not your strong suit. Right? It's always going to be a little bit harder for you to navigate when you have a loss. Right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I, I would guess that 
Yeah, I'd have to really think about it, but I would guess <laughs> that most people clinically depressed at some point are having a grief struggle, whether it's, you know, the loss of identity, loss of capability, um, there's a loss, right? So there's that. Mm-hmm. And then I think like the interaction of emotion on, um, on how outcomes go. So sometimes what we, what we forget is um, that emotions kind of love themselves, so we might have something that happens and an emotion pops up, right? And it's it's pretty hard for us to really control that. I mean, you can, but probably not as well in your personal life or not for a long period of time, right? So if I'm in a professional setting and somebody says something that I'm angry about, I'm probably better at controlling that, mm-hmm. especially if I'm not depressed or having a mental health challenge. I can probably stop that or or table it or something. But if I'm struggling with some of these other things, yeah, I can find some rationalization for that. (laughs) Um, But emotions are important, right? They tell us things about what our surroundings are or what we value or what's going on with other people. They tell us a lot of stuff that we otherwise don't have words for, right? So they're very important. The problem is they kind of like themselves. So if you get an emotion and it keeps going and it's doing whatever it wants, it'll often tell you what it wants you to do, right? So if I'm sad, typically I wanna cry. That's what I typically do when I'm sad. If I'm guilty, I wanna hide or avoid, right? Um, If I'm angry, I wanna lash out, right? And emotions try and get me to do stuff. So when when you're dealing with depression, generally sadness is a part of that. Um, and sadness just makes you want to curl up in a ball, hide under a blanket and not do anything. The problem with that is it feeds the sadness, right? And the sadness just gets bigger because you're not doing anything to get it down. Right. So a lot of the time, you know, what we're looking to do is to capture that idea and say, okay, we understand you have this emotion and maybe you can't stop the sadness from coming right now. But what you can think about is what are the actions I'm doing that's making that emotion bigger? Um, And so there's a very specific um, treatment called self-activation where we very much hone in on that and say, okay, we understand that you can't get rid of the sadness that causes this depression, but we know how to get it set up so that that sadness doesn't control everything you do. You get to control what you do, which in turn might make the sadness go down. Wow. That, that sounds like an incredible array of you know, clinical tools that, that you've got available, um, just, you know, in a, in a therapy kind of a setting. Um, but the, the interesting part was where you had just said, I know you can't make the sadness go away. And in, in my experience and, and what I've seen, um, that that's kind of the middle ground because it seems that most people when they have feelings that they don't like or you know those uncomfortable feelings of sadness or lack of motivation or lack of accomplishment you name it mm-hmm. when, when they've got those unpleasant feelings they then feel guilty about these feelings and they try to push them away um and or you know hide them from the kids <laughs> you know I've, I've heard that avoid, um, avoid, i can't avoid. let my children see this yeah. How do you, 
I don't know. How do you deal with that? Um, or what, how about this? How about this? This is why I don't write my questions out ahead of time. I just kind of have a sketch of what we want I to like talk it better. About. It's good. <laughs> I'd probably, okay. Probably be more professional if I wrote them out a little bit more. Um, but my question is what advice, you know, general advice would you have for our lay people who are stressed out? Um, if you had one thing to say about, about dealing with emotions, um, what would you be able to, to say that, you know, as a starting point, not as a clinical, you know, prescription mm-hmm. and recommendation, but just general good for your mental health. What is it that we aren't getting? Mm. Somebody asked me a similar question the other day, and I pretty quickly knew the answer. Um, it is that what I want people to know is that feelings are not facts. That feelings are there to inform you, color in the picture, help you get more information, help you understand yourself and others. But they're not always accurate and they're not always helpful. And you don't have to follow them every time. Um, you know, because that is a, that is, that's a read in the wind, right? That's um, basing your actions on feelings is, is rarely concrete enough to get you where you want to be. So even in the case of like guilt, right? We could use the same example for guilt. Guilt makes me want to avoid or hide, right? So I can just ignore, avoid, move away, lie. I can do all kinds of things. Um, when guilt is in the picture, right? It's what I want to do. That's what my sinful nature wants to do. And we all know that's what happened in the fall, right? I mean, literally that's Mm -hmm. what happened. There was guilt, let's hide. Um, And so what's the cure, right? Even scripturally, the cure is go towards God, confess, right? Move towards the thing that makes you feel that way, right? So it's good to find them. It's good to acknowledge them, but understanding that now you don't live with that. That isn't who you are. That isn't a fact, right? I can get mm-hmm. the guilt to go down by going towards it. The opposite of what it wants me to do. Yeah. Because, and, and I see the, the overlay um, when I deal with things pastorally on a spiritual level is that even even our feelings of guilt, um, we, I like to draw the distinction between feelings of guilt and actual guilt, um, that a person may carry feelings of guilt for a long time, um, but the actual guilt was removed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I think <laughs> kind of the other part that kind of comes to mind with that is that part from 1 John, where it says that God is greater than our hearts. And, uh, and he knows, he knows the truth about us so that even if our hearts convict us and tell us we're guilty, the reality is that God knows that he has set us free. Um, I say that similarly, pastor. I always, I really want people to separate guilt and shame. And I'll say it this way, like (laughs) guilt. If, if I'm on the freeway and the speed limit is 70, right. And I'm Mm -hmm. going 78 and you're going 72, which of us is guilty? Oh boy. Both of us are. Yeah, both of us are guilty. Traffic camera. (laughs) (laughs) So both of us are guilty, but one Uh of us might feel more shame than the other. Right. Um, And I might even feel pretty good about myself that I'm not going 78 like that person. That's true. Right. Um, So to separate guilt, guilt is very important, right? It tells you you've done something against your moral code. 
It's supposed mm-hmm. to be there. It's part of your conscience. It's built in. God gave it to you for a reason. So if that's true, you need to look at guilt and say, okay, what is it that guilt's trying to tell me? Guilt's trying to tell me I did something wrong. What do I do as a Christian? Objective forgiveness. I'm, I, I go, I confess, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. And I understand that the price is paid for that. Shame is, mm-hmm. in my opinion, shame is what the devil does to make you question that. That, he, that you wander around in shame saying, I don't know if I'm forgiven. I feel unforgiven. I'm not feeling it today. I'm, uh, I'm feeling out of sorts. And, in, and if I'm forgiven, why do I feel this way? Feelings aren't facts. That is going to wrap up part one of our two-part interview with Karen Fisher from Christian Family Solutions. Be sure to tune in next week for the rest of the discussion where we kind of finish up our discussion of depression and how do we handle this and how do we deal with guilt and shame, especially when it comes to parenting and, um, and teaching our children a godly morality while also helping them to understand how to process and talk about their feelings in a factual way. Thanks so much to Karen Fisher and Christian Family Solutions for the audio. Be sure to check out the show notes for the handout that she mentions.